we all have something, a gift, that we did not ask for. Upon realizing what we have, though, usually we all want to keep it. None of us would want to forfeit the gift that's been given, but rather to steward and care for that gift and make it the very best that it can be. For some, this gift turns sour and they either look for ways to improve it or look for ways to forget about it and some even throw it away. But most people fight tooth and toenail if they think they are at risk of losing this precious gift. And I am talking about the gift of life, the life that we have been given. None of us ask to be born, yet on coming to the the point of self-awareness, we realize what we have is something that we want to keep. And um, I've heard people say, kind of tongue-in-cheek, that uh, we pray uh, sometimes as, as church people, as Christian people, we pray harder to keep saints out of heaven than we do to keep sinners out of hell. Uh, that is, we pray for sick people that are about to die, and we say, oh, Lord, don't let them die. But it is rare that we all make it from the cradle to the grave without the feeling that something is missing. Most people at at some point in their life come to the the realization, the understanding, or at least the, the intuition, the feeling that there is something missing from my life. And they will search in a variety of places and in a variety of ways to to fill in the missing piece. And if we could only find that missing piece, then life would be complete. I want to talk to you this morning and probably for the next couple of weeks from the topic, Life in His Name. Life in His name. As I was thinking about uh, Easter and the Passion Week, I was realizing that I have preached often from the synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but I had done very little from the Gospel of John. And so I wanted to look at the Gospel of John and see what we would find. And and in only three Sundays, there's not going to be a real deep Uh, uh, look into the Gospel of John, but it's going to be kind of a high-altitude flyover, the Gospel of John. We find in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, the reason for which John writes his Gospel. John chapter 20 and verse 30 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pause for just one more moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we ask your blessing on the reading of the Scripture and your blessing on the remainder of our time together. Father, we pray that you will give us the strength and the, uh, the uh, anointing uh, that only is provided by your Spirit. We pray that you will speak to every heart that is here. Give us a desire to know you and a desire to respond in obedience to what you have to say. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're familiar or you've studied your Bible much, you may know that there are four Gospels that begin the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptics. In other words, they, you can lay them one on top of the other and find that much of what is contained in one is found in the others as well, and they, they overlap quite a lot. John is not one of the synoptics. John is kind of off by himself, and somewhere in the neighborhood of 90% or so of the material that we find in John's gospel is unique. In other words, John is telling his story, his biography of Jesus, from a completely different perspective uh, than the other gospel writers uh, uh, approached. It is a brilliantly written book, and in this book, and what I want to focus on today and the next two Sundays, uh, culminating with Easter Sunday, John gives us three sets of sevens. Three sets of sevens. Interestingly enough, if you study the other book of the Bible that John wrote, one of the other books, the, uh, the uh, last book, the book of Revelation, that's another book that's full of sevens, full of sets of sevens. Uh, but John's gospel is also full of sevens. The first, there are seven I am statements of Jesus, where Jesus says to somebody or he says to a crowd of people, I am this or I am that. Uh, then there are seven I am declarations, where Jesus seven different times simply states, I am. And then third, there are seven signs or seven miracles that are recorded throughout uh, the Gospel of John. This morning, I want to look at these seven I am statements of Jesus, where when Jesus was interacting with the crowds, interacting with his disciples or his followers, he explained who he was to them by saying, I am First of all, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. We can go back to John chapter 6 and read a passage there. If you remember the story that uh, a time came when there were thousands gathered to hear Jesus teaching, and uh, they needed to depart so they could find something to eat. And Jesus told his disciples, you give them something to eat. And they said, Lord, we don't really have anything to feed them. And if we had several weeks of wages, we couldn't afford to buy enough to feed this big crowd. 
How do you expect us to feed them? And they found a little boy's lunch that had a few fish and a few pieces of bread in it. And Jesus said, you bring that to me. And he took and he broke the bread and the fish and gave it to his disciples and he distributed it to this group of thousands upon thousands of people and they were all filled and satisfied. Well, when that happened, you know, people, they know a good thing when they see it. You know, how would you like to have a, a king or a president or a governor uh, some kind of political, civic leader, what have you, who could, with, by whatever means, multiply bread and fishes. That would take care of the hunger crisis all over the world, wouldn't it? Well, that's what these people thought, and they came to Jesus uh, after this had taken place, intending to make him their king by force. And in John chapter, uh, chapter 6, we read about this. Um, verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. You see, the Jews believed that when the Messiah came, one of the things that he would do was that he would bring manna from heaven just like Moses did. You remember the story when Moses was leading uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt and they didn't have food to eat and God spoke to Moses and told him that bread would come from heaven and they were to collect what they needed each morning. And the Jews believed that when Messiah came, that he would do the same thing. You see, they looked back and they saw how God had given them bread in the past, and they expected something similar. This was the challenge that they presented to Jesus. Give us this bread if you are really, if you are the Messiah, if you're the Christ. And and uh, they were looking for something to satisfy their material hunger, their physical hunger. There is something about bread, isn't there? I love the smell of fresh baked bread, and I enjoy eating it even better. But bread is always considered to be a sacred gift. Uh, when uh, the Jews said a blessing over their food, over their meal, they would say something like this, Blessed be God who brings forth bread or brings forth wheat from the ground. They considered it a sacred gift. Bread was a continual or at least a common sacrifice. Many sacrifices that were made before God were accompanied with bread. And also it was considered the, the essence of what is needed to sustain life, a necessity to sustain life. You may not like it very much, but you can get along very well on bread and water. John Wesley, if you are to study, if you were to study his life, there was a period of time when John Wesley subsisted on nothing but bread and water, and he uh, recorded in his journal how he found he suffered no ill effects from just bread and water. But these were people that were looking for 
something to satisfy physical hunger, something to sustain them. And Jesus tells them, I am the bread of life. I am what you need. He goes on to say, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. John chapter 8 and verse 12, we read, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, to understand uh, the significance of what Jesus is telling them, we need to know a little bit about the time frame in which he's speaking to them. This took place right around the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And during the Feast of the Tabernacles, there was a great ceremony called the Illumination of the Temple which involved a ritual uh, lighting of four golden oil-fed lamps. These were not just little lamps like you might have on your nightstand or an end table, uh, but these lamps were huge menorahs, huge candelabras that were 75 feet high. Huge. Uh, fueled by oil, and they were lit uh, during this ceremony of the illumination of the temple. And it was said that the, the brilliance of the light was so bright that it would light up the whole city of Jerusalem. More likely, from anywhere in the city, they could look towards the temple and see that illumination there. And all night long the light would shine in their brilliance. And this was to remind the people of the time that God led them through uh, out of Egypt's bondage and through the wilderness to the promised land with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was a celebration of that time. And during this time of celebration and anticipation, it is said that the holiest of Israel's men would dance and sing psalms of joy and praise before the Lord. And it was a festival not only looking back at God's fire that led them through the wilderness, but it was also looking forward to a time that God had promised to send light the light of the world to a sin-darkened world. God promised to send the Messiah to renew Israel's glory and release them from bondage and restore their joy. It is on this occasion, on this, uh, during this time frame, when Jesus stood up before the people and said to them, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I could, I could spend some more time. This is difficult because I'm trying to fit seven uh, points into one sermon, and probably each one of these seven could be a, a sermon by themselves. Um, but we'll make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, if you continue to read that chapter in John chapter 8, following where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, you find that uh, they, the, the Pharisees accused him and said, you can't be uh, true, you can't be for real because you are bearing witness to yourself. And so your testimony can't be true. But have you ever thought of this, that light cannot help but bear witness to itself? It doesn't need anybody to say there is the light, or there is the light. It doesn't need an external witness. Light just simply bears witness to itself. 
Jesus did go on to explain that there are others that testify on his behalf. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. Look at John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door or by the gate, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, only sheepfolds in towns or cities or villages would have had gates with a key where the shepherd could herd their animals into the fold and then shut and lock the door. Sheepfolds in, in the wild country would be a simple enclosure with one opening, but that opening had no gate. And so the shepherds, taking care of their sheep, would literally become the gate when after they had uh, collected their animals together and gotten them inside the fold and they knew they were all safe, the shepherd would then lay his body down across the opening so that the only way in or out of the sheepfold was over the body of the shepherd. And Jesus says to these people, I am the door of the sheep. The only way into safety, the only way into real life, the only way into security is through me, is by me. I was often interested by that phrase that says they will go in and out and find pasture. And I, not thinking much about the background of this passage, I thought, you know, once we're in the sheepfold of Jesus, wouldn't we want to stay in? Why would we be interested in going in and out? Well, the reality is that that, is a, that was a common statement, the, this going in and out uh, of, of the Jewish people, that uh, was an indication of security and safety. We read it in a number of places in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 27 and verse 17. Numbers 27, 17. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd." So this going in and coming out, it's, it's the idea of 
you know, when you, when you leave your house and walk down the street, you don't have to go constantly looking over your shoulder to make sure there's nobody sneaking up behind you. You are in safety. You are in a place of security. Another passage that we could read, but I'll skip over that one, 1 Kings 3.7. You can look that one up on your own time if you'd like. But another is found in Psalms 121 and 8. Psalms 121 and 8 says, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So it is this idea of safety and security, and all of us would agree that a a meaningful life, a, a contented life, is one where we know that we are safe and secure. You can't have a meaningful, comfortable life if you have the feeling that you're always in danger and your life is always threatened. And Jesus says to his people, I am the gate for the sheep. In other words, I am the one. And literally what he was telling them is that the the sheepfold is not Israel. That's what the people thought. They thought that by being Israelites, they were in safety. But Jesus is telling them, it's not because you're Israelites, but it's going to be only through me that you find this place of safety and security. Not only did he say he was the gate for the sheep, but he said he was the good shepherd. He said, I'm the door, I'm the gate of the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. John chapter 10, again, and verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. He's just there for a paycheck. Not many people are willing to put their lives on the line for a paycheck, though. He flees because he is a hired hand, cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down, lay down my life for the sheep. Barclay, in his commentary, on this passage says this, the shepherd was absolutely responsible for the sheep. If anything happened to a sheep, he had to produce some kind of proof that it was not his fault. To the shepherd, it was the most natural thing to risk his life in defense of his flock. Sometimes the shepherd had to do more than risk his life. Sometimes he was forced to lay it down for the sheep. You remember the story of David? when he was getting ready to go out and face the giant Goliath. And King Saul said, you're just a young boy. You are but a youth, but a lad. You can't go out and fight this giant. And David said to King Saul, O king, I've served, I've tended my father's sheep and many times delivered them from danger. And he tells about a time when a bear came to, to take from the flock, and another time a lion came from the flock. And little David, what we sing about, you know, little, little David was probably not so little. He was probably in his, in his mid to late teens at that time. But even that's a young age for somebody being willing to put their life on the line for their responsibility, isn't it? But David was apparently very willing, and he said, I, both, the, both times, the lion and the bear, 
I killed the lion and the bear and delivered the sheep from their hands. You see, the sheep are the responsibility of the shepherd, and the hireling, the one that does not own the sheep or is not really the shepherd, doesn't care that much. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I literally put my life on the line. Not just put my life on the line, but I lay down my life for the sheep. But there's one more thing that I want to point out to you about this passage where it says Jesus is the good shepherd. There are two Greek words that could be used for good, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. One is the word agathos. It's the idea of moral goodness, a moral quality. But there is another word called kalos or kalos, and that is a goodness that includes not just moral goodness, but includes the idea of beauty and loveliness. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he is a beautiful, a lovely shepherd. There's a wonderful story that would fit right here, but I'm going to skip that story. You see, in these first four ideas, these first four, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate or the door for the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. It is as if Jesus is saying, I am all you need for life in life. While you're living, I am all you need for life. Everything you need is found in Jesus. But what about in death? Do we find what we need In times of death, do we find that in Jesus Christ? Yes, we do, because Jesus also said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 11, verses 21 through 27. This is from the story, you remember when Jesus' friend Lazarus had gotten sick and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, had sent for Jesus and and they didn't have to mention any names, they just sent word to say, Lord, come for the one that you love is sick. And they believed that Jesus would drop what he was doing and come immediately, but Jesus delayed his coming so that Lazarus died and had to be laid in the grave. And by the time Jesus showed up on the scene, there were people already in mourning, people grieving. And Martha was the first to come and greet Jesus and speak to him and say, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother had not died. They had a faith in Jesus. They believed in his power to heal. But it seems they did not fully understand yet who and what he was. Verse 22, but even now, Martha says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's pretty good faith, isn't it? When your brother that's sick has died and is already laid in the tomb, and Martha says, still, Lord, I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. It's interesting, if you go back to the Old Testament, the idea of a belief or a doctrine of resurrection was not as common. You can find it in the Old Testament, but it is not universal. It's not until sometime later 
And one commentator that I was reading after said this, that to the Jews, their, their belief and their confidence in the idea of being God's chosen people and what God was going to do for them was so strong that when they saw everything that happened around them in the world, they realized that it wasn't going to happen in this life. So they began almost from a, a logical, intuitive point of view to, to begin to believe in the idea of a resurrection because if God was going to do everything for the Jews that He had promised that He was going to do, it couldn't be coming true in this world, in this life. It had to mean that there was going to be another life beyond this one. And that was what brought them uh, to a more universal understanding or belief of a resurrection. But even in Jesus' day, there were groups of people, some called the Sadducees. And they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. <laughs> so they were sad. Um, but the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Martha believed in the resurrection. She said to Jesus, yes, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He said to Martha, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Martha had some insight, and Mary had some insight. You know, there, there's something about you ladies. You ladies seem to pick up on things quicker than, than we men do. And I think that they, they intuited some things. They figured some things out about Jesus and about who He was. They believed Martha had a confidence in Jesus. And you know how that story ends. Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and uh, said to roll away the stone. And they said, but Lord, by this time, he stinketh. He's been in there four days. But he convinced them to roll away the stone. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came out alive again from the grave. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the spiritual resurrection and life. You see, we come into this world, we are born to a physical life, but we are born spiritually dead. And when we come to the age of accountability and we are responsible for our actions before God, at that moment, each one of us needs a Savior, needs someone to intervene on our behalf to bring us to life, spiritually speaking. And as I've mentioned to you numbers of times lately, I liked what the preacher said, who, who said the reason we need to be born again is because we weren't born right the first time. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who brings us the life that we need, but also the physical resurrection and the life. I've been in a position uh, a number of times to talk to people about uh, helping them with, with end-of-life matters. Helping with either, you know, or is there going to be a burial or is there going to be a cremation or, or what's going to happen? And uh, some of those things have been, 
have been controversial at times in the past, uh, especially the idea of, of cremation. Can I tell you something? If you are concerned about that, let me just tell you to put your mind at ease. Put your mind at ease. Don't worry about, to, you know, what happens with the body after death is it turns to dust anyway. So God is not going to be limited to, in, in any way to bring your loved one back. However, they were, whether they were buried or whether they were cremated or, or whether they were. I have, I have a distant relative that was lost at sea, was serving in the Navy, and just, just disappeared. But friends, I have no doubt that when the trumpet sounds and Jesus appears in the clouds to receive his own back to himself, and the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first, there's not going to be anything to hinder all of the molecules of those bodies to begin coming back together and reforming. And the Bible says that we will know just as we have been known. You will be able to know and recognize your loved ones, no matter how far apart or how distant their, the, the, the molecules of their body may have, uh, may have come apart. It won't matter. It won't be a problem. It won't be difficult for Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. Also, he says, and I'm coming close to the end, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Say, well, Jesus is all we need in life. He's the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the gate for the sheep. He is the good shepherd. He's all we need in life. He's all we need in death. He is the resurrection and the life. What about after death? Is he all we need after death? Certainly he is. John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions, the King James Version says. I don't think mansions are rooms. I don't think it matters which, which one. We can debate that some other time if you want to. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How are we to navigate somewhere we've never been? How are we to make it to the destination we hope for? In using these words where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus combines three of the great basic conceptions of the Jewish religion and says that in himself, all three find their full realization, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way. The way is the way of God. It's God's way. The truth is God's truth, and God's truth finds its embodiment in Christ. You see, uh, 
one way to uh, think about this is we think about Jesus saying, I am the truth. A, a man's character does not really affect his teaching if what he's teaching is geometry or, or, uh, or grammar or chemistry. His, his character, his integrity doesn't really affect him teaching those things. You can teach the facts of a matter simply by knowing the facts. But if a man proposes to teach moral truth, that is the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, then his life and his character had better align with the truth he's trying to teach. This is one of the reasons why it is so tragic and heartbreaking to the church when we see leaders fall into uh, immorality and sins of that kind. This is why it creates such a furor in the world when... Uh, when um, okay, I'm going to name some names here, but don't get troubled or disturbed too much. It's why the, the world at large gets so troubled when Republicans who are supposed to be the, the political party of family values are caught in moral scandals. And it gives too, way too much ammunition to the other side to say, I thought you were supposed to be the party of family values. Look at that, your own people falling into immorality and adultery and scandal. God help us. God forgive us. If a man proposes to teach and acclaim and lift up moral truth, and to say, this is what's right and this is what's wrong, then he had better be sure that his character, his integrity, that, it, that he, he lives a life that lines up with the morality that he is talking about. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Imagine being in a strange town and trying to find your way to a particular location. And you ask someone for directions, and they say to you something like this. Take the first road to the right, and then the second on the left. Then cross the square and go past the church. Take the third road on the right, and then the place you want is the fourth door on the left. Now, from those directions, how many of you think you could find where you were trying to go? One of you. Wow, I'm impressed. I couldn't. I couldn't. But rather, instead of someone giving you directions like that, if they said to you, like they do where they, in these stores where they practice good customer service, and you ask them, where could I find such and such? And they say, I think it's over here. And they take you and say, come, I'll show you. And they walk with you down the aisles and say, it's on aisle 17. And they walk here. It's down here, right here on the right hand on the bottom shelf. They take you. In other words, rather than giving you directions, they become the way for you. And this is exactly what Jesus did, friends. Whether in life or in death or after death, we find our way in Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. John 15, verses 1 through 5. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When Jesus said, I am the true vine, that word true is a word that means real, authentic, and genuine. Real, authentic, genuine. The image of the vine is a huge part of the religious heritage of the Jews. Over and over in the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as the vine or the vineyard of God. In Isaiah chapter 5, I'll take just a quick moment and read to you some of these verses. Uh, We read uh, a song, really. Isaiah 5 verse 1, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. This is God talking about Israel. The the imagery, the symbolism is that Israel is the vineyard and God is the one who plants the vineyard. And looks for his vineyard to bring forth grapes, but it produces only wild grapes. Still, the vine continued to be a symbol of the nation of Israel. It was the emblem on the coins of the Maccabees during that time of Israel's history. And one of the glories of Herod's temple was a great golden vine upon one of the gates that led into the sanctuary. Here's an artist's rendering of it. You probably can't tell much about it from where you're sitting. But there was a, one of the gates to the sanctuary at Herod's temple, uh, Herod's temple. As far as I know, Herod never had a temple. Herod's temple. There were pillars and posts, and there was a, a molded vine out of gold, with, with clusters of grapes and leaves. This feature was one of the most remarkable in all of the temple precincts. Someone wrote about this, that it was uh, many people desired to give a leaf or a single grape or a cluster as a free will offering, and it would be brought, and the priest would then hang it on the vine. And it was considered a great honor. It is very likely that it was to this vine that Jesus was referring to when he spoke to his disciples and said to them, I am the true vine. Not Israel. Not this golden vine that's symbolic of Israel. You see the symbol of the vine in the Old Testament, is never used apart from the idea of degeneration. If you read through the Old Testament where it refers to Israel as the vine or the vineyard of the Lord, it's always tied to degeneration. The vineyard has run wild. It does not produce good fruit, only wild fruit. 
Jesus says, Israel is not the vine. I am the vine. In other words, I am the source of everything that you need. (coughs) Excuse me. So all that we need in life, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. All that we need in life is found in Jesus Christ. All that we need in death, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, it's found in Jesus. He is the source of all of that. All that we need to find our way from this world safely into the next is found in Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. You see, life without any of these things, life without the sustenance of bread, life without illuminating light, life without safety and security that comes from a strong gate and a good shepherd, or the hope for life beyond this one, or or knowledge about how to get from this world to the next, all of that is useless without a connection to the source of life, a connection to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, what he intended us to understand is that through our relational connection to him, through abiding in him, we would find all that we need for all of these other areas. You see, without it, it's like a puzzle with a missing piece or maybe lots of missing pieces. But friends, I want to tell you this morning as we conclude, that if you find yourself missing something in life, there's a missing piece somewhere, you will find that in Jesus Christ. He is the missing piece. Amen. Let's stand together, please.